Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our investment a mastermind and i've got to be honest i think we're pretty slow on uh q3 but we're gonna do it anyway and obviously we'll have to catch up a bit on uh on q4 and as ever i am joined today by adam lawrence and manish kataria so welcome guys how are you all good thank you all good thank you i'm well thank you looking forward to today as always yeah so i guess before we start with our picks for this quarter. What are your thoughts on a bit about the kind of the macro environment and the investment environment at the moment? And we're seeing kind of the bond yields keep creeping up over in the US. Just had an inflation reading that was pretty kind of stagnant in, in terms of where it was compared to last month, September, August and September. How are you finding investment at the moment? I know obviously we're all fairly into property that's an interesting one on its own but what about in other uh, investment classes so Manish what, what are your thoughts on that? Well there's certainly uncertainty as you said Rod but let's just start off by remembering that markets have had a good year so far mm. and I think we kind of said that at the start of the year that yeah we probably things are looking good they're never looking amazingly well and perfect right the markets never look perfect but j- let's just remember the S&P is up more than 10% this year Nasdaq is up more than 30 even the FTSE is up this year, which is a great thing. Bonds are down, but you know most equities are up. So the way I look at it is that there's always seasonality, right? So if you look at the textbook seasonality, you get a strong first half, you get a sluggish Q3, and then you get that Santa Claus rally in Q4. That's just on average, right? I'm not saying it's going to happen this year, but on average. But so far, that pattern's playing out. Economically, I, the US is looking pretty strong right now and consumers strong unemployment's low despite higher interest rates and actually the u.s average u.s mortgage rate i was reading the other day is up to eight percent now on there they fixed theirs for 30 years just eight percent so despite all of this stuff the u.s economy is looking strong but, but that, that is, that's it's not that great is for... new purchases isn't it because obviously existing purchases yeah. and that then kind of feeds into transactions. So it means that people Mm. just aren't selling and aren't buying, which I think is important to say. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's true. So it doesn't really affect the existing mortgage holders. That's exactly right. But for if you're buying a new property, yeah, I mean, 8% is is not great, but people are still spending money. Fundamentally higher yields. We're seeing higher yields, which I know we're going to talk about later. But the big thing for equities is that the earnings, you know, profits still looking better than expected. So we're in the middle of Q3 earnings season and they're coming in better than expectations. So we're on course for a positive earnings growth quarter this time for the for the first time in a while. So that's helping. That should help equities because at the end of the day, why do we buy equities? It's for the profits and earnings, right? That's the only thing that really matters for stocks. And do you think the earnings factor is brought in by kind of just costs increasing everywhere due to inflation, due to wage increases, or is it actually more of the underlying economy is doing well? 
I think it's a bit of both. So, you know, these are profits, not just revenues, right? So profits are growing. I think it's a bit of both because the US economy, as I mentioned, is really strong and demand is continuing despite all of those cost cost increases and higher interest rates. And, you know, there's also tech. So tech is, we know tech is an important sector. People are spending money on technology, both corporates and consumers. And so there's no holding back the US consumer. They are continuing to spend their money. Brilliant. Adam, over to you then. What are your thoughts? I think I'd probably sort of add a little bit of nuance to some of what Manish has just said. Very rarely sort of pick holes in anything he says because it's nearly impossible to, to be honest. But I've been interested recently in the, it's always about what's different this time, what's not different. And the big seven, including NVIDIA now, doing really well even in the face of higher interest rates, which is what really hurt them last year. But the the small caps, the rest of the market, without the big seven is not so good. But you take out the big seven and now you take 28% out of the S&P 500. Now, that's not a situation we've ever been in before. And that's nothing we've ever... We don't have historical comparisons for the tech goliaths who are money printing machines. And as Manish said, you know, ultimately looking at future value, discounted cash flow, that's one of the ways in which you value stocks. Um, I think the bonds dropping provides some opportunity, but we're going to talk about that in a while. I think it's also worth saying US house prices are still down around about 8% since the end of last year. But to put that into context, they were up 46% over the period of the pandemic, where we thought that 25, 20, 25% was a lot, 30% in some parts of the country. They were up 46. So they're sort of riding the lightning. I haven't seen the US data on new mortgage purchases versus new cash purchases. But of course, it's really important at the moment to try and split those two up because cash market looks pretty functional, pretty standard, pretty normal. In the UK, the mortgage market has dropped by 30% just because of the cost of borrowing. And as you said at the beginning, Rod, we have gone through a bonds dropping cycle the last couple of weeks. So yields increasing again. And really, the US is not doing us any favours because it's dragging our yield upwards. Although you couldn't take Manish's comments and apply them to the strength of the UK economy, really, because everything we keep seeing on the consumer front, you know, confidence is is rock bottom. Retail sales year on year are down. You know, US went through a bit of a slump like this earlier this year, the very, very start of the year, and has powered back out of it. But at the moment doesn't quite feel like the UK is going to do the same thing. So, yeah, we're probably caught up in that wave, but I think there's probably more argument for our bond yields to be a little bit lower at the moment, whereas in the US, I agree, it really is charging on. And inflation looks like, in in reality, uh, and I've said this for for many years, you know, the real government target at a time like this is about 4%, but nobody's going to save 4%. They want to stick with the the tapestry that it's 2%, but they're delighted to depreciate that. uh, I can't remember where that these days, 38.7 trillion or something insane like that. That's their national debt these days. So it's frankly paper money, isn't it? So they're never paying that back. So um, it it is what it is. And there's definitely a theme to our picks today, isn't there? So, shall we crack on? Does anyone want to volunteer to go first? You want me to go because I think I went last last time, so I'm, I'm happy to to shout it up, and it it probably continues on from that. And I know we've got we're probably talking at relatively similar purposes as we as we often do. So it's dead clear to me, following on from all of that, that particularly UK kilts provide. I brief internet problems there. Sorry, 
Um, yeah, UK gilts look like they provide tons of value to me at the moment. And if you look at the yield curve, it's doing a strange sort. Of, it's doing a strange impression of a U-boat at the moment, where the thirty-year is the same yield as the one-year, which I can't really quite make sense of. And I'd be quite happy, and I am quite. I wish I was a pension fund trustee because I have the easiest job in the world today. Five point one percent, or a little over, on the five-year on the thirty-year bond yield, just looks like if that's not a trading opportunity over the next few years i'm not sure what is but i don't think it's realistic to think over 30 years that inflation will run at over say three and a half percent and that gives you a one and a half percent real return but also it gives you quite a bit of flex in terms of trading out of that position if you want it to so it's the safest money in the world until the government goes bust but i had this debate with someone it was actually last week Rod, when we were doing our business retreat the popular philosophy that the UK and the US are bankrupt is, is frankly nonsense because the UK governmental income runs these days at something over a, a trillion pounds a year. So if you were to value a business with a, a near guaranteed income of that sort of level over the next 50 years, even a decent discount rate, you'd end up showing a very, very large balance, which is a bit like why the the ninety percent of GDP, the ninety percent of, of GDP as debt figure is a little bit nonsensical, to be honest. It's one of those data mind numbers that comes up over the year, but of course, no one talks about it at the moment because everyone's above ninety percent anyway. But I, I think it it really represents some fantastic value, and I think in the long run, it's going to look like it, it within the next five years. I'll be stunned if that doesn't look like a really good price. Great. So, a few comments from me. How would you go about purchasing that? Would you literally buy gilts because they're tax-free in your name? Or would you be trying to get an ETF that tracks, I don't know, bundle of kind of UK gilts or something along those lines? And why? So it's a, it's a great question. And there's probably a little technical point I need to make there. The income from gilts is not tax-free. It's taxed okay. at income tax rates. But the capital gain is tax-free. And of course, what you're doing with a 30-year bond with that sort of yield, as long as the coupon is below 5.1%, which of course it is because lots of gilts have been issued at very low coupons over the last three years or so, then those are the ones you want to buy. Ideally, it might it might be a 28-year with a quarter percent coupon or something like that, because that will all be reflected in the capital gain and that would be the tax-free element. So if I was sitting with six or seven or even more figures in a Coots account or something like that, I would phone Coots and get them to do that trade for me at a very competitive price. They would do that at sort of a 0.1% margin or something like that. And that would be the way that I would do it. If I was investing a smaller amount, I might well be looking at some blended long duration bond fund ETFs or similar. Um, but I, I just picked out the 30 year because there's reasonable liquidity and at the 50-year, the yield starts to come back down again as well. And there's not much liquidity comparatively in the 50-year. So if, what I would just caution anybody listening to this against is if you've got money in, I don't want to pick on any investment houses in particular, but let's just say one of the bigger wrappers or places where people keep ISA money and things like that, you definitely want to be looking at the ETFs rather than trying to buy the bond itself because they tend to use quite a big spread in the bond markets that are much, much higher 
than what you would need to pay if you were having a trader on behalf of the bank place place that trade for you. So just look out. The ETFs with their low cost base can give a great way to get some exposure. But I'd be sticking. I, I do feel specifically positive about the UK over that duration, rather than it being European or or wide or Western world or anything like that. Okay, great. I mean, what about things like rollover? issues if you're trying to go back in are there kind of concerns with that in terms of got no not in terms of cgt rollover but just in terms of when the money comes back out so like in, uh, reinvestment risk and things like that exactly. but that's always that's one advantage of the 30 year of course the one year is fine and i've been saying this to people so there was obviously a period where the one and two year were yielding six percent and above and that looks great but as long as you're planning what to do in those one or two years when it comes off because I wouldn't expect it to be 6% again. So where will that leave you? Whereas here, you are obviously hedging away that reinvestment risk. And going back to my pension fund analogy, you've done your job (laughs) pretty much for the next 30 years. And it goes, it's amazing how starkly different that is to what pension funds have needed to do over the last 15 years or so in the ZERP environment or whatever you want to call it. Brilliant. Manish, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's look, I think we're all moving in the same theme today anyway, which is that yields, there's probably more downside risk to yields than upside risk. So from that point of view, I the only thing I would say is that with the, the risk with longer dated bonds, the 30-year bonds, is that they're much more vulnerable to higher yields. So if, if yields do go up, which is not base expectation, I know, but if yields do keep going up, the 30-year will be much more affected and impacted in terms of capital values than a one-year bond, for example, right? Which is kind of what happened last year in 2022, the long-dated bonds. You'd think bonds were fairly safe, but bonds were down 18 20% last year, the long-dated bonds were, and that's because yields were going up, right? So that's the only risk that I'd be aware of, that I'd be conscious about. But apart from that, look, yeah, I mean, there's loads of ETFs around, there's loads of funds around, as Adam said, and, you know, the capital gains issue is an advantage if you buy the single bonds, but actually, if you buy in an ISA or a pension, you don't need to worry about it capital gains tax anyway. So yeah, there's lots of choice around if you wanted to do it via a fund or an ETF. Brilliant. I think I might go next because mine kind of leads on quite nicely from that. And my pick is an ETF that tracks the US government 10-year inflation bond. Ticker is UBTP, or it can be LU or LUX, depending on where you are kind of buying it. The reason is really quite similar to what Adam's been saying. Over in the US, bonds are increasing. There's possibly a little bit more risk that they can go up a bit further. But, I mean, we had, in 2022, the worst year for total returns for bonds. And everyone kind of felt that this year, 2023, there'd be a bit of a reversion to the mean. But that hasn't happened. <laughs> We're coming off for the second worst year since I think 1967 or whenever it was that the data sort of started coming out. So I, I am kind of thinking what I guess the market thought last year. There's always that kind of factor that the market can um, can stay irrational more than you can stay solvent. So that's where I'm going with that. I mean, it's it's a high yield inflation linked ETF as well. So I think the yield at the moment is around seven and a half that it's paying on there, which I think is pretty good. I'm, I'm just thinking, look, in an environment where you've got inflation where it is, 
you've got the issues we've got with kind of equities that we talked about when you take out the big seven. I just think the downside is limited, especially when you've got these higher, higher yielding bonds as well. But again, I'll be interested to hear what your thoughts are on the US front in terms of the fact that, I mean, it's it's hedging against the pound as well to a point. And I quite like that because if inflation is going to continue a bit more in the US, I feel that that's a benefit as well. There, you're kind of, you're covering yourself a bit by hedging against the pound. That was kind of my, my thought process around that. But I'll be interested to see what, what you guys think about it. I think it's, I think it's, well, I, when I look at these sorts of, I, I love looking at really long-term graphs, right? Because it gives you a bit of, it takes you out of the day-to-day and the melee and the news and everything that's going on. And uh, a, a friend of mine some months ago, nearly 12 months ago now, had had a considerable windfall in dollars and he needed to transfer them back to pounds. And the first thing he was ringing me and said, what should I do? When should I do it? How should I do it? Blah. And I said, well, hold on a second. First of all, I'm not a forex trader, right? But look at the pound versus the dollar over the past 50 years. And this was just about the time when Liz Truss had done her, I think it was the morning after the night before of, of the crazy budget. And uh, I said that historically, 103 it traded at in the Far East in the, in the middle of the night. I said it looks very, very, very cheap. There was one point in the 80s, I think it was, when we were down there. And I said, I, personally, regardless of, sort of the next, the view of the next week or month or six months, I would make that trade. And he got it done and he got a fantastic, he got almost the best price he could possibly have got. And it wasn't a small sum of money. So he was really, really pleased about that. And I think the same goes for the yields. I understand we have to look at the current environment, but when we look at it historically, and then when we throw in, what do we really think the natural rate of inflation is in the US once this cycle plays out? Because these cycles almost always end in the same way. And there's a there's a bit of a ticking time bomb. Something goes off, something we haven't necessarily seen happens. And then things have to drop um, or be devalued or there's serious deceleration of debt or, or debt is written down effectively. And by going after the, the governmental stuff, it's it's much less likely that's going to happen. So historically, the price looks cheap. The yield looks great. While the real yields are where they are and what you were saying about the index linking makes loads of sense. And I think it's it's great that you're not, you aren't sort of, you weren't all in last year and are now just topping up sort of thing, which would be chasing the dragon. This really feels like a good time to make this sort of trade to me. Manish, how about you? Yeah, I would say similar comments to what I said about Adam's one. You know, the only risk is that yields continue to go up. The difference between yours and Adam's is that, well, yours is in the US, uh, but it's hedged to GBP, isn't it? And it's inflation linked. So, you know, because it's inflation linked, the current inflation expectation is already priced into the market. So where you get the kicker is if the inflation is higher than expectations. And if it turns out that we have an upside surprise in inflation, that would do really well because right now everyone thinks especially in the us everyone thinks inflation is dead you see the graph and it's just it peaked to i don't know eight percent or something and it's just continued to come down come down come down and i'm not sure if it's going to keep coming down because all the prices have gone up of late and you know the any surprise is to the upside potentially and so the labor and the labor market as well it's labor market's very good. strong yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it could work well if inflation surprises to the upside. 
you've got that hedge with inflation. So yeah, that could be pretty good. Great. Just be aware of higher yields because you, you see the inflation protected bonds last year in an environment where inflation was going crazy in the UK. Inflation protected bonds actually fell quite heavily last year. It's And the reason for that is because the yield effect offset the inflation effect. And because yields were going up so strongly, the longer dated bonds, because inflation protected bonds tend to be longer dated in the UK, and that's why they underperform. So that's the only thing you need to watch out for. Good advice. Thank you. So Manish, do you want to go ahead with your your pick then? Yeah, yeah. So mine is, uh, it's an ETF called GDX. And this is a US listed ETF consisting of gold miners. So there's 50 odd gold miners, mainly listed in Canada, Australia and the US. And you get a smallish dividend yield 2%. But the reason I picked it's a gold play. Now, normally, I wouldn't go for gold. I'm not a big fan of gold and silver. But right now, I think I just want a bit of insurance in my portfolio. So it gives me exposure to insurance in case, you know, what we're seeing in the Middle East, if that escalates and it gets out of hand, you know, gold will really kind of be bought up on the back of that because gold is a fear trade, right? A lot of people think it's an inflation trade, but it's actually, you know, works better as a fear trade. So as an insurance play, yeah, it works for me. It also works for lower yields because gold does well when yields are going down, which I know both of you are expecting. So it's a twin play on both a fear uh, scenario and lower yields. And and why don't I just buy gold itself? And why did I go for a gold mining ETF? Uh, so gold miners are more leveraged to the gold price, right? So if gold goes up 5%, you'd expect gold miners, their profits to go up 10%. So that's why it's just a more leveraged play on the gold price. Hello, everyone. I, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between 6 and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do, provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. 
and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. Great. I mean, you answered my first question, which was why not buy gold. Um, the other question is, how long would you expect to be in this then? And what would you need to see in the market for you to go, OK, I'm going to get out of this? Yeah, I'm, I'm really buying this for insurance because obviously there's geopolitical concerns going on right now and also lower yield. So this could play out in the next three to six months. And and as I mentioned at the outset, you know, I'm not a huge fan of gold longer term. So I'd be probably holding on to this for three to six months, see how things develop. And you know, if there's 10, 15 percent in this, I'd be happy to take my profits and move on. The other way to play this is through options, which, by the way, I have an options play on this and it earns two percent a month as well. So that's the other way to play it. Brilliant. Adam, any thoughts on the gold? Yeah, I think it's probably surprised a few people that gold hasn't performed the way it is. And I don't know if it's a, a tendency in my YouTube algorithm or something else, but I seem to be full of people who want to tell me that gold is going to go, you know, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, whatever. I, I think the manager's got limited downside and massive upside here or an event that if you read the commentators from the big consultancy firms or the big investment houses, they are putting a fairly significant probability, 20 or 25%, on fairly serious escalation involving Iran, apart from anything else. Uh, in the event of that, I think you would see the sort of return that Manish is talking about, at least, because, as he says, he's levered. So I think it's probably relatively small downside, because gold's been a bit of a head-scratching price, given where inflation has been in the US and where it still is, realistically, because ultimately inflation has been quite so significant. I mean, it hasn't quite been as significant as the UK, but gold has generally done pretty well. Over So going back to my previous comments, the long-term chart, it doesn't look like the worst time to buy it in the world. It's had a pretty flat six months, which is a fairly big drop, and then a, a pretty decent recovery, obviously, in the last two weeks for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, there could be quite a lot of upside here, I think. And I think I'm surprised the price today of gold doesn't start with a two in terms of the dollar price. And I think the upside risks are worth taking. Interestingly enough, the other day I was watching on Netflix the film I think it's called Gold with Matthew McConaughey. So, yeah, I've, I've been thinking a fair bit about that recently <laughs> where he's a gold miner. Definitely uh, want to have a watch of with you if you haven't seen it. Before we go, shall we have a quick discussion about where you think the credit market is in the UK at the moment? I know we're all involved in property and so mortgages is a big part. I'm starting to see... Nothing like kind of 2008, but I'm starting to see a little bit of pushback from some banks, from some lenders about things that typically they wouldn't have pushed back on before. Seemingly people starting to um, become a little bit more picky about what they're lending on. What are your thoughts? Do you think this is kind of a direction of travel or am I just the unlucky one that's getting <laughs> difficult lenders at the moment? No one likes Rod anymore. Rod's not flavour of the month. No, I mean, look, I'm seeing similar as you know. And I think it's actually, so I've written about this for this Sunday supplement, actually, because 
it's very difficult to a quantify or b put a duration on a situation like this because it happens very slowly and it's the occasional little tip and tilt and all the rest of it i mean ultimately organizations that want to lend money at the moment have got money that they want to need to get out the door and so there's still that driver in there and there's an element to which they need to lend to the people who are at the table to borrow at these sorts of rates which means they're looking for stuff that's throwing off plenty of cash but everybody wants to do loans at 30 percent loan to value uh base plus or sonia plus three or whatever um unfortunately the world doesn't work like that so with a lot of the resi market relatively dry and the buy to let market much more dry in percentage terms i think they can't be too choosy but the last two weeks won't have helped anyone who's nervy in a credit risk team or the, you know the, the chief risk officer or whatever because bond yields have gone up. We've come back about 40, 50 basis points from what looked like a, a relative bit of calm. Um, and that's not normally what you'd expect when there's been a conflict, a hot war slash conflict situation. You know, normally you'd expect the yields to be coming back down a bit. So it's always interesting when the market does something different to what you expect to happen or what conventional wisdom says. Seems to happen about half the time. I'm about as successful predicting the bond yield as I am flipping a coin, I think, to be honest with you. But I think there's there's real, there's definitely unspoken nerve. And I think as well, for people who've got property on the open market at the moment, that if it's reasonably priced and it's in great condition, I think you haven't got too many problems. I'm looking at the houses that are still moving locally to me. And I look at the data rather than getting too, you know, emotionally involved. And yeah, they're moving. There's some markets that aren't even quite buyer's markets yet, but it's all benchmarking. And we remember the market from last year where things were getting flying off the shelves left, right and centre. So it's a bit more normalised. It's relatively considerably worse and credit tightening won't help. But there's going to be a direct correlation between the price of five-year debt in the UK and the house price and the market as it stands anyway. It's really the significant factor at the moment because whilst we've all talked about supply and demand, and we're not wrong about supply and demand, the supply and demand problem this year is worse than I think it'll... When the dust settles and we see the figures, it will be worse than it's ever been because a huge amount of net migration and a terrible delivery of, of net new units will be a problem. That might still get worse next year, but the whole market is being defined by the price of credit. And the last couple of weeks, events have not helped us with that. Yeah, totally agree on those fronts. Manish, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that, Adam. Just to add to that, and kind of based on what you said earlier, it's not an 08. The difference between now and 08 is that in 08, banks were fighting for their lives. And right now, they're in pretty good shape, all of them. So that's not the issue. I think what they are nervous about, what they're concerned about is that, well, two, three things. One is that the market has is is a fair way below its peak. And, you know, they're nervous that it might keep dropping. The second thing is the banks around the world, central banks have indicated higher for longer. So we're not going to get an immediate big drop in base rates. And the third thing is that uh, we've got the prospect of a Labour government coming in next year, you know, with a possibly with a big majority if today's by-elections are anything to judge by. So all of those three factors would, uh, if you're a lender out there, you'd be staying on the cautious side, I would imagine, with all of those fundamental factors. So I think that's probably what's going on right now. Well, I just have one thing, so I think that's a, a really good broad summary. The other thing that's worth considering, of course, is that 
because of the way the market has moved and because of things like interest coverage ratios and stuff like that, it's not uncommon at all these days to be seeing five to seven percent fees. And there's something fundamentally wrong with that if you're trying to take less risk, because 75 percent to value with a seven percent fee is an 82 percent loan. And that's why you're seeing a few lenders creep back on the LTV. They're not actually taking less risk. They're just lumping it on the fee. So they really need to come down to about 65 percent at the moment, which could cause and that, that, that's not, not impossible by any stretch. And that will cause, obviously, even more tightening. And I'm just talking the buy-to-let market here, but it's already so tight in terms of new mortgage take-up. It's a problem. I think some homelessness figures were have just come out this week, um, which don't look pretty at all. And I think a lot of it was reasons given for homelessness were landlords selling up as well. So you are seeing a lot of that. I mean, I think it was Homes England that published it, but I'll try and find a link to that and put it in the show notes. But it's quite interesting. I, I think I saw 15% up, Rod, somewhere on the news feeds. That sounds about right, which is very sad. And this is the thing. This is the a typical political argument. Oh, it's, it's great news, according to everyone, because landlords sell up and then owner-occupiers buy them. Well, this is the impact. Yeah. It's, is it good news? You need a stable rental sector. Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. Well, listen, we think we've talked enough on that, but we will definitely be back in time for Q4. So right at the end of the year to give our last mastermind of 2023. Really looking forward to what we're going to end up thinking is a good deal at that point. Thanks again, Adam and Manish, and look forward to doing it in a couple of months time. Thanks, Rod. Cheers, Adam. Thanks, Manish. Cheers, Rod.